Welcome to America's Commercial Real Estate Show. We like to be your source for market intelligence, forecasts, and strategies. Hi, I'm Michael Ball. Thank you for being with us. This segment is brought to you by Building Owners and Managers Institute International, the trusted source for education in the property and facility industries. Check them out at BOMI, B-O-M-I dot org. Well, today we're talking about retail and retail real estate. Please welcome my guest, Barbara Denham. She is senior economist with Reese, and she's joining us on the phone. Barbara, thank you for being with us. Thank you for having me. Well, Barbara, how did 2018 wrap up? It seems like in the retail world, in the news, that uh, everything was doom and gloom. Uh, how did the pro retail properties end up with performance-wise uh, in 2018 around the country? Well, I would say it. It ended on a very, very quiet note in that the vacancy rate was unchanged for the second quarter in a row at 10.2%, and the asking rent went up by only 0.4% for the quarter. The year-over-year -year increase of in retail rents has been 1.6% uh, in general over the last year, which is really, really low. It's below the rate of inflation. However, I think a year ago, so many people expected it to be much lower than that. In fact, most people expected it to be negative, given all the store closures. And the fact that it's actually positive, even if it's low, is, is, is something to be at least, you know, confident about, that the retail sector didn't uh, go off a cliff in 2018. Right. And how did that impact uh, occupancy? Like I said, vacancy rates were unchanged. They oh, were, okay. Uh, the, 10. the vacancy 10. rate is 10.2%. Right. It's been that way since the second quarter when it went up um, from 10.0% um, a year ago. Well, you know, Barbara, I'm a husband, so I have to be told everything twice as well. Ah, <laughs> that's okay. That's what my wife tells me. So what do you expect for performance moving forward uh, into 2019? We're in 2019 January as we, as we speak today. The movement uh, in the market has been so slow but steady that I don't really see some, any real dramatic changes. I think there's going to be a few more closures of Sears stores, um, but we had a lot of closures of Sears stores um, the second and third quarter this year, and the mall vacancy rate had gone up in the third quarter, and the um, shopping center, neighborhood and community shopping center vacancy rate went up in the second quarter. So we're not going to see that much drama, even from the further uh, closing of stores. Uh, a lot of retailers have closed some of these uh, bigger, uh, big box parts of their shopping centers or their malls and actually have converted them to self-storage space or other use. Um, so I don't expect that much drama. And the good thing is that there's not a lot of construction underway. So there's not that much uh, development in the pipeline, and that's good because, um, you know, we were probably over-retailed to begin with, and a lot of what we're seeing in the market is a, a correction of all that over-retail. Yeah, I, I agree with that, and the correction is, I guess, going pretty well when you look at it, considering how much increase we've had in online sales. If your, your rate increases, you've actually had rental rate increases year over year, 1.6, uh, that, that's pretty strong. That might surprise some people, you think? Yes. I think a lot of people would be surprised. In fact, there was no real decline um, in rent growth all year, despite um, some negative net absorption. Right. So, 
And Barbara, it's, it seems like consumers have had a lot to cheer about in 2018. You know, they had maybe more spendable income from the tax uh, improvements there, and uh, they've had a great stock market. And most markets, they've had increases in their home values. So, has that reflected well in, in retail sales? Is that part of uh, kind of the positive story we're hearing? Certainly. So, what? Uh, first of all, 2018 started off with a bang because of the Tax Reform Act that put extra discretionary income in a lot of people's hands. Almost everyone's uh, take-home pay went up. So, yes, a lot of that was spent uh, not just online sales, but in retail stores, in restaurants. I mean, we forget about how the biggest lessor, one of the biggest lessors of, of retail space is restaurants. And uh, restaurants have been growing uh, very rapidly. So, yes, it started out the year very good. Home values were still improving. But what happened was at the end of the year with the stock market correction and the, you know, pause in the housing market, that may have created a little bit of hesitancy in the retail market. But, um, you know, I think spending is still pretty strong given that job growth is positive and it's expected to stay positive. Um, so it's a little bit of, you know, two steps, three steps forward, two steps back. But all in all, I think it's a very healthy market overall. Okay. So the Tax Reform Act and the, the great stock market and home values, uh, that didn't spike the, the uh, punch. <laughs> uh, it, it, you know, it seems like there, was, there has been a lot of consumer confidence. You'd expect that consumer confidence to remain in, in retail sales and therefore, I guess, retail properties perform well moving forward then. Yeah, I, I, I think so. I mean, we're also seeing um, different uses renting space. So we see a lot of um, uh, health fitness centers and gyms renting retail space, some trampoline parks, um, and some newer grocery store concepts, whether it's organic stores or, you know, Asian-flavored stores or different, just different grocery store concepts or, or uh, leasing space in the uh, properties that we're tracking. So, yes, I think there's a lot to be optimistic about. Um, going forward for the retail sector. Yeah, and I think there's a lot of great retail properties, and, and we've been selling some shopping centers around the southeast. There seems to be a lot of buyer interest and some sellers that are really willing to, hey, with the changes going on in retail, I'll, maybe I will go ahead and sell. What was the trend for cap rates, Barbara? When you look at 2018, uh, what do you see there? Well, cap rates have definitely come up a bit in retail properties, um, not dramatically, but, you know, they've always been higher than office properties, apartment properties. Uh, so they're way up about 20, 30 basis points overall. Um, so, again, nothing to be really that concerned with, uh, but uh, I don't see cap rates coming down in the near future. They're, they're, they, they're, they tend to be very volatile to begin with because the actual volume of retail sales uh, has fallen pretty dramatically over the years, and that you know, very few buyers are really that eager to buy retail properties, and a lot of the properties um, that kind of look to be retail um, property sales are actually development site sales. So we have to screen out all those property sales that aren't truly retail. They're 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 formerly retail, but you know they're being torn down and being redeveloped. So the overall volume of true retail-to-retail property sales isn't as high. The cap rates are definitely going up, but not as dramatically because what is trading as a pure retail um, is mostly the high-end, um, very well-located properties. Yeah. Well, you make a good point there. We, we, we see that as well. When you look at some of these sales, you go, wait, 
that was a really low cap rate. Well, no, they're going to build a hotel on part of that property. Or, exactly. Uh, you're right. Uh, it's going to be a new mixed-use development. So um, there is a lot of change in use going on in these properties. So what would you expect for kind of pure retail property sales um, to do into 2019? And, and has your outlook adjusted any with the recent changes in the stock market and, and, uh, and political goings-on, if you will? Uh, for interest rates uh, in 2019 and, and, and corresponding cap rates? Um, well, you know, we're really at a point where, you know, it could go either way. I think we have seen the last Fed funds hike for a while. I think the um, they may pause in the first quarter until they get a little bit more data. Uh, certainly we saw a lot of volatility in the stock market and a lot of measures and a lot of uh, hype around even the announcement of the Fed funds hike in December. So they may put a pause on that. Um, so the outlook for interest rates is pretty neutral, meaning they, they aren't really expected to change that dramatically this year unless things improve. I mean, it's kind of a, we're in a good situation in that, you know, the Federal Reserve kind of has a handle on things, so they don't have to increase interest rates unless things improve, and then they probably will. But if they improve, then, you know, it means more people are working and, and GDP is, is stronger than they expected. So the outlook is a little pretty neutral, but I don't think there's that much to worry about right now unless, you know, some unforeseen event happens either globally or uh, or otherwise. Um, but the economy's you know, definitely at a uh, kind of neutral position right now, and I think the outlook for December employment growth that should be out Friday is pretty optimistic. Yeah, okay. And do you see any markets doing better than others or any markets that maybe are doing well and, and surprised you? Yeah, unfortunately, it's kind of the same story in terms of the the, uh, the haves and the haves not in retail. So the West Coast uh, markets are all doing extremely well. Um, Seattle, uh, San Francisco, um, uh, Denver's doing very well. Um, but in Jacksonville and Florida, uh, Orlando markets are doing well. It's all the markets in between, like mostly in the Midwest, that aren't doing as well. So like Albuquerque, New Mexico is hurting, uh, Cleveland, Louisville, Oklahoma City, Tucson, uh, and then the two in, in, uh, Cal- in uh, Connecticut, Hartford and Fairfield County, seeing rent declines and, and vacancy increases. So, um, so yeah, there's always going to be the, the, the stronger markets and the ones where tourism is still very strong, um, and they should probably see uh, more of that as um, you know, there's still more growth on the on the coast than there are, is in the interior in the country. And what are you seeing in the city? Well, uh, the retail in New York is is, is kind of mixed. Um, you know, we don't have it in our neighborhood shopping center uh, numbers, but um, there's a lot of empty storefronts in New York City, and I think landlords really need to adjust their expectations because um, retailers will not be are not willing to pay higher rents. So we're we're seeing a lot of empty storefronts in in, in New York City, and it's. You know, it's raised a lot of concerns, both from a uh, economy point of view and a, even a safety point of view. Because you know, retailers, you know, keep the activity uh, alive, and, and and you know, they are, are better for the 
just the general neighborhood in general. So, uh, but the restaurant industry in New York is still going strong, so everyone's still going out to eat. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Well, Barbara, what would you leave our audience with related to uh, retail around the U.S.? Uh, it's it's a lot better than a lot of people think. So yes, they're they're closing a lot of stores, but I think a lot of people would agree that um, many of the traditional retailers that are closing a lot of stores just have not kept up with the overall. Uh, demands that the retail sector and consumers want, which is, you know, you have to refresh your stores, you have to uh, change your lighting to make it look more appealing, and you have to have a nice atmosphere to keep retailers or to keep consumers in your your stores. And if you don't, you know, consumers would much rather buy things online. Um, So I think this restructuring was necessary and it's not over yet, but it's it's more than halfway over. So I think uh, I think the outlook is still a lot better than a lot of people think. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's awesome, and I, and I agree with those points. And Barbara, thanks for being this great information as usual. Thank you. Uh, oh, my pleasure. If you like more information from Barbara and the good folks at Reese, their website is reese.com. R E I S. Now we're going to take a short break, but stay with us. I'm going to have an operator to give you some tips on on operations and then also have an attorney with some legal tips related to retail property. Stay with us. I'm Michael Bull. This is America's Commercial Real Estate Show. Would you like to be the top producing commercial broker in your office? Check out Michael Bull's video training. Since you're a show listener, you receive 10% off your first purchase. At checkout, use discount code CREshow. Visit CommercialAgentSuccess.com. Welcome back to America's Commercial Real Estate Show. I'm Michael Ball. The segment is brought to you by BuyProxy.com. This is interesting. It's a complimentary commercial real estate listing service. And plus, they have a customized suite of marketing tools available. And you do pay for those. It's called BuyProxy, B-I-P-R-O-X-I.com. Check them out. Well, today we're talking about retail, retail real estate and retailers. Please welcome my next guest. It's Beth Azor. She's with Azor Advisory Services, and she's joining us on Skype. Beth, uh, good to talk to you again. Good morning, Michael. Happy New Year. How are you? Same to you. Very good. So I'd like to know, Beth, what you're seeing for tenant profitability right now. How are the retail tenants doing? And, And what are you seeing for retail tenant demand today? Absolutely. So, uh, you know, there's a difference between, I think, the national tenants and the mom and pop tenants. I have a portfolio of six shopping centers, about 150 tenants. And I will tell you, for the first time in a long time at the at mid-December, I had zero delinquencies, not one tenant in the entire portfolio for mom and pops or nationals were delinquent in their rent or late. And uh, I don't know when the last time that was, you know, I know we keep hearing in the industry and in the newspapers and, you know, on the news channels that a correction might be coming, but I look at how healthy my tenants are and uh, to not have one single delinquency in, in, again, my small portfolio is pretty amazing. That's amazing. And now you're headquartered and Fort Lauderdale, right? So what, what also are you seeing for tenant demand and, and vacancy around in the markets you work? Yeah, for sure. I, uh, I think that occupancy is at an all-time high. 
in the markets that are strong. So in South Florida, the strong markets are the markets with high income, uh, high population, uh, young, younger age demographics, double, you know, dual working population. So the more, the more um, demographic areas that are an older population, maybe more retirees, has significantly more vacancy. But, but the middle to higher income is the highest occupancy and the lowest vacancy, again, in probably six to eight years, and the highest rents. And the tenants uh, have a huge demand in going into those markets, those high-income you know, population areas because the, the, the consumer that has uh, the high, higher income has higher disposable income. And then what you definitely see the correlation with higher sales and with higher sales, there's, you know, that's where the tenants want to be. Right. Well, that makes sense. So there's been a big push to tenants that give you an experience. And one of those experiences is eating, right? It's dining. Um, what do you see for retail and, and, and tenants in the restaurant business and, and food courts and that sort of thing? And of course, that was big in the mall days, right? And we're seeing some of these new projects that, uh, that they do have a lot of food. What, what do you see in your area? Yeah, uh, I would say uh, 10 years ago, if you had a shopping center, you would limit your food to about 15 to 20 percent of your projects. And uh, you did that you know, just because that was historical, but you also did that because your co-tenants, some of your anchor tenants would preclude you from adding to that percentage. Today, projects are being built or even acquired and redeveloped. You're seeing food go to 40 to 50%, which is crazy. Uh, but the tenants and the restaurants are the, the tenants that are providing the experience and doing the sales. I have a small 42,000 square foot center. I have six restaurants uh, combined. They're doing over $10 million in sales for my restaurants. They're, you know, they're, they're like a mini anchor. Uh, but you also are seeing, which I think is going to be disrupted in the next year to 18 months, is all of the food halls that are being developed across the country. I mean, in South Florida alone, we have over 10 being developed we probably should have two or three. So uh, I think that that, you know, it's a fancy, you know, uh, way to do things, but they can't all make it. And the cost of managing those and uh, reinventing the concept and bringing and the marketing that you need to bring people to bring the traffic to make those successful, I think we're going to have, unfortunately, a lot of empty food halls around the country uh, which is, you know, will have to be redeveloped and repurposed into something else. Right, right. That makes sense. In some markets, it seems like we're getting too many restaurants, but they seem to be doing well, certainly doing well right now. Well, retailers today, we're, we're often concerned that they are omni-channel marketing, that they're using social media, that they're using a lot of technology. And before the show, uh, you mentioned a term called frictionless commerce. Tell us about that. Sure. So, you know, Michael, I'm sure you've, you've done your share of Uber rideshare, yes? Yes. So I was at the ICSE in New York last a couple of weeks ago, and I can't tell you how many, you know, sometimes the taxi was more available than the Uber. So I'd jump in the taxi and I'd go to my next destination and I would be hopping out of the taxi and the driver would go, excuse me, you need to pay. You need to pay. You know, we're so used to this frictionless 
way of doing commerce that makes it, you know, time is our commodity, right? We can't, that's one thing we can't buy. So if the, if the uh, retailer can provide us with an experience that's frictionless, meaning we've paid in advance, we don't have to stop what we're doing, get out our credit card, get out cash, wait for the change. Uh, you know, we're buying time. I, I um, you know, Amazon Go is experimenting with this uh, throughout the Northwest where they are opening stores and no one pays for anything. They, you walk in, they, you know, Big Brother immediately registers that you've got a credit card in your pocket that you've pre-registered with Amazon Go. You buy your items for, it's, you know, some miracle. I've not been in one yet, but they scan the items and walk, and you walk out of the door. So, uh, another example is shipped or Instacart where you sit at home and you're, or you're at work and you go to the app and you order the, you know, 10 things you order every week, you know, milk, orange juice, eggs, bacon, whatever the, those things are. And a delivery person delivers it to your house. And again, you've prepaid and pre-ordered it's frictionless. I see that trend with retailers becoming, you know, a year from now, there will be way more people doing that because it saves the consumer time. And if you, if you can take an Uber instead of a taxi because you save some, you know, some time, you're going to do that. Yeah, that's a good point. And the other thing I've seen about having uh, groceries delivered and things is it also might even save you money because you're not in there doing those impulse buys, right? <laughs> Absolutely. My, my grocery bill, since I started using Shipped, is down about 150 a month. So what do you see, Beth, related to automobiles and parking requirements here? You're talking now about some of these uh, uh, grocery stores and things really being um, used as distribution points and, and deliveries and, and uh, people that are being are going in and out of these places with the Uber. Like I, I left the restaurant the other night. Uh, I, had, I was delivered there and I, I went home in Uber. I didn't use a parking spot. What do you see day to day related to that in your business? Sure. And, and I, I would say, Michael, that this will be the biggest disruptor in the retail industry over the next three to five years. Uh, I think that because of rideshare, I'm already lobbying my municipalities that my five to one parking ratio is too high. Now, if they will, you know, and I, I, I feel that I'm going to lobby them now so that in two years they'll all come around. I will have to provide a drop-off and pickup area at my centers, but if I can add another restaurant, if my restaurants are doing so well and I can add another restaurant in my property because my parking ratios have been adjusted for the rideshare, that would be a good thing for me. But a, a lot of changes are going to happen. I think that car dealerships, you know, my girlfriend actually, and she happens to be a director of real estate for a, a major coffee retailer. She just bought her daughter a car in a, from a vending machine from a company called Carvana. Mm -hmm. Have you heard of Carvana? I have. A amazing. So, and she even wanted to use her car, the car dealership she'd bought in three or four cars from in the past, called that car dealership and said, look, I'm about to buy a car in a vending machine. Can you match this deal? And the car dealership could not match the deal. And the car was delivered to her house. Again, talk about removing friction. Just buying a car, is, you know, makes you think friction. So I think car dealerships, you know, 
there's going to be some available redevelopment opportunity with car dealerships that are located on Maine and Maine, because I think people, my, my home, my house, I'm down to one car. When I was growing up, I had a car. My parents both had a car. You know, my son, who's 18, and my other one, who's 15, about to be 16, they prefer Uber budgets over, you know, owning a car and paying insurance. And frankly, it's safer, you know, as a mother as well. So I think car dealerships will be affected. I think parking garage income, I've already had friends, developers in metropolitan cities like Dallas, I mean, like um, Washington, D.C., tell me that their parking garage income is down 30 percent. And if if that's a budgeted item that they're that they've been expecting for the last 10 years, that's a huge disruption. I think auto parts, tires, you know, I, I just think this is a part of our of the retail industry where these retailers are are using main and main pieces of real estate that will be available in the next three to five years. Yeah, I agree. I think uh, you're right, especially with the ride sharing and and uh, we can rent cars now if we need one uh, from from an individual. Um, and Beth, you mentioned that you were lobbying municipalities where your properties are to see if you can add uh, additional restaurant maybe on the on the property. Are you talking about adding additional square footage for that restaurant or converting some retail to restaurant? Converting retail. So in certain municipalities, you get capped out on your properties mm-hmm. if you have a five to one ratio because uh, restaurants in, require much more parking in a parking study for a municipality. So okay. like I said, I have, I think, six restaurants at this one property. I've got restaurant you know, brokers calling me every week. Can you, you know, we'd love to put a restaurant at your property because I have a lot of daytime population around me. I have a a college, I have a hospital. So, you know, I've got a sub shop guy doing $1.8 million in sub sales in 1200 square feet. So I've got a very high demand location. Can't add another restaurant because the parking unit, the the municipality uh, attributes or assigns too much parking to restaurants. So I'm starting to lobby them to start saying, can we do a, a different parking study showing more of the ride share? I think it will take me a year or two, but yeah. I'm okay. encouraging all of my developer friends to start lobbying the municipalities. And maybe the parking ratio should be, you know, one per, you know, four all instead right. of five. And a final question for you, Beth, you know, these single tenant net lease restaurant properties, uh, you know, the, the Walgreens, the CVS, uh, these types of properties have always been considered very safe investments, long-term leases. Obviously, these are high credit tenants. Do you see any disruption or anything going on in the drugstore world? I absolutely do. I think with Amazon jumping in, and I think it's uh, one of the big financial institutions jumping into the pharmacy business, I think that uh, the drugstore industry is going to have a huge disruption. I think I mean, Walgreens has already started closing hundreds of stores. And the challenge with that is uh, redeveloping a 13,000 square foot box is not as easy as redeveloping a 5,000 square foot bank branch. So um, and there's only so many karate studios and beauty supplies and Dollar Trees that can take those over. So I'm a little concerned about that industry. I don't think it's a safe investment like it used to be. Uh, And I you know, I see those getting knocked down. They're great main and main locations, but I do think there's that anyone that owns those, um, even though the, the, the drugstores will continue to pay rent until their, you know, their leases expire. But I don't see, I, I see 
the the landscape of drugstore real estate changing significantly over the next few years. Yeah, well, it's interesting. Yeah, we've seen some clients uh, contact us with, yeah, they're getting the income from the drugstore, but they're dark, or maybe they've subleased, and so they're a little concerned. Well, Beth, great information. Thank you for uh, joining us today. Thank you so much for having me, Michael. All right. Well, we'll stay with us. We'll have more on retailers and retail real estate. I'm Michael Bull. This is America's Commercial Real Estate Show. Are you looking for proven property management and facilities management education? Visit BOMI.org. That's B-O-M-I, Building Owners and Managers Institute International. They are the trusted source for education in the property and facilities industry. Visit BOMI.org. Are you looking to buy, sell, or lease commercial real estate? You're invited to contact Bull Realty for customized asset and occupancy solutions. Call 404-876-1640 or visit bullrealty.com. Welcome back to America's Commercial Real Estate Show. I'm Michael Bull. Thank you for being with us. This segment is brought to you by my company, Bull Realty. For custom asset and occupancy solutions, visit bullrealty.com or give me a call. Today we're talking about retail, retail business, retail real estate. Please welcome my next guest, Nick Garcia. He's Director of Leasing with Heinz, and he's here in Studio One. Nick, thanks for being with us. Glad to be here again, Michael. Happy New Year. Thank you. Well, Nick, you know, one thing that I think a lot of people look at is in retail, the holiday season really means a lot, right? It I know does. a yes. lot of retailers do a, a lot, a big, large bulk of their sales. So who were the winners and losers and uh, and, and it's this past holiday season and uh, what's that translate for, for those types of businesses moving forward? Sure. I, I think a lot of the numbers are still starting to trickle in, but a lot of the, re a lot of the different retailers are giving guidance about where they ended up. Uh, Costco, Walmart had really, really big, you know, fourth quarters and holiday season. Uh, Target uh, did as well. You know, Amazon, everybody likes to kind of think about them as a online, but they're morphing into a retailer. And I think the definition of what retail really means whether it's online or in a store is changing. So um, I think you got to definitely got to include them in that group. Some of the other discounters, people like TJ Maxx, uh, some of your, what do you call it, dollar store chains did very, very well over that time. Believe it or not, Macy's. Uh, I believe their comps are up about 3% versus last year. Uh, nice to see the, you know, the traditional department store kind of making a, uh, uh, comeback. Is it solving all their issues and problems? No, but um, I think they're definitely moving in the right direction. Uh, as far as the people that you know, kind of missed out uh, this holiday season, like got Pier One had a terrible fourth quarter. They had to you know, really deeply discount a lot of their merchandise. Uh, Sears, um, that's been an ongoing struggle and story for several several years, and it looks like they're about to get one more you know kind of lifeline uh, before they you know kind of fall apart completely. Um, they did not have a great great you know fourth uh, quarter and holiday season. Believe it or not, somebody like a Starbucks, um, which bet heavily on merchandise this fourth quarter to push mugs and you know makers and things like that out the door. They were really disappointed with how that worked out as well. But um, uh, overall, you know, you've got the economy doing very, very well. So I think on I think based on 
taste, trends, whether you're on merchandise or not, I think you'll see a lot of people kind of in one bag or the other. We met or exceeded expectations or we just kind of fell short of those expectations. Yeah. Well, Nick, where are people shopping? I went to a, a mixed-use development and it was very vibrant. Mm -hmm. I went to to a mall. Uh, well, actually, I went near it. I didn't, it was, the parking lot was packed, so mm -hmm. I, I didn't really go in. But it, was, it seemed very vibrant. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, where are people doing their shopping today? I, th I think it depends on what the purpose of your trip really, really is. Mm -hmm. And I think what you're seeing nationally, you're starting to see, Michael, like a stratification of um, mall product type. Mm -hmm. um, the bigger mall REITs, Simon, GGP, Mace Rich, Westfield, they've all kind of shed their C and lower type of projects and they're focusing on, you know, B and better type of properties. Mm -hmm. um, and so, and even in the mall sector, you've got malls that kind of have a broad general appeal, or you've got malls that have a very narrow appeal as far as the merchandise goes. Mm -hmm. So, um, I, I do think there's a natural sort of appeal, though, of the mixed-use uh, open-air, you know, lifestyle center projects. It kind of reminds people of what you know Main Street USA really used to be. And um, I just think being outside, you know, particularly here in the southeast, as long as it's not raining, people really enjoy that open-air, walkable you know, quasi-urban atmosphere is a place to go and just spend time. I don't even think it's really even about shopping sometimes. Mm -hmm. It's about that third place mm -hmm. yeah. where people just want to kind of hang out, have a cup of coffee, and then just kind of, you know, window shop and browse a little bit. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you totally. In fact, I did that uh, one weekend in December. It was a pretty day, and I went mm -hmm. to a mixed-use development. Mm -hmm. I thought, you know what, I'll go and uh, have a bite to eat. I'll have a drink, and you, mm -hmm. you know, and, uh, and then I'll think about, walking around and, and think about gifts for for certain people so true I, I did that and you know, I know a lot of people around the country uh, are familiar with Atlantic Station where you do the leasing and it's a uh, it's a very large uh, mixed-use development uh, in a very midtown area of, of Atlanta um, and it's went through some changes over the years mm -hmm. right uh, how is it how is it doing now how are mixed-use tenants especially in retail doing what, what's the vibe there uh, bigger picture I think the generation of you know stores that are starting to grow and kind of spread their wings and open stores they're designing for urban streets they're designing for mixed-use projects they're not designing their stores they're not targeting their stores anyways for single-purpose traditional retail malls mm -hmm. so I think products that are not going to be diversifying themselves um, with offices with hotels with fitness other non-true retail sort of places mm -hmm. Are going to be at a little bit of a disadvantage. Uh, with respect to Atlantic Station, though, um, 2018 was just a huge, huge year for us. Mm -hmm. um, we're now in our third year of ownership of that project, and um, there's over a half a billion dollars of brand new leasing development taking place wow. there. We broke ground um, on our uh, Central Park redevelopment, which is going to include three local chef-driven restaurants, and it's going to be about a $20 million rehab to the physical part of it just to make that you know nice creature comfort sort of place where people want to come and hang out in. Uh, we opened up our flagship 40,000 square foot H&M. We started construction on two additional flagship retailers that will be opening up in 2019 um, and plans have been made in our different stages of approval for three brand new hotels totaling nearly 400 rooms that will be open by the end of 2020. Uh, Amley, the national multifamily development company, they're going to break ground in the spring on a new 360-unit uh, luxury residential complex that's going to have 25,000 square feet, a new shop on the base level of it, right in the heart of the project. So um, in a lot of ways, if anybody knows the west side of Atlanta, our project Atlantic Station, I think, really jump-started all of the development that's happening on the west side. And I would argue with anybody that you wouldn't see as rapid of a transformation there without the 17th Street Bridge being extended 
over because yeah. it made a very fast east-west connection. Yeah. Um, so things are going very, very well. There's going to be a lot of barricades and a lot of dust flying mm -hmm. uh, with us this year, but um, in the fourth quarter, um, the project's really evolving to a point that I think the original developers always wanted it to, yeah. and it was truly, truly ahead of its time. Let me ask you, you mentioned a couple new restaurants mm -hmm. opening up, and, and not just your center, but when you look at shopping centers, malls, uh, mixed-use developments around the U.S., mm -hmm. can you have too many restaurants? <laughs> <laughs> that, that doesn't seem to be a, really uh, going against the trend these days. Yeah. I, I think a great collection of restaurants, Michael, five, mm -hmm. six, seven of them, can almost act as like a de facto anchor yeah. to, to a project the way a department yeah. store used to. Um, the one trend I think that is here, it's not a fad anymore. People love dining out. Mm -hmm. And I think that's going to be with us for a very, very long time. Mm -hmm. um, the other thing I think you see happening out there is uh, the growth of food halls. Mm -hmm. And I don't believe there's a national consensus yet about the best model to run those on. I also don't believe that they're a magic bullet. But um, food halls seem to be, uh, um, they're almost like the co-working spaces for the food community. Mm -hmm. You get uh, people in there that want to try their wares with one particular menu item. You get a couple anchor spots within there as well too that drive that mm -hmm. consistent traffic. Um, but um, I, I, I still think that those are, that's an evolving sort of feature. And I still think there's a lot of issues out there with the operation of them. So it seems like everybody's kind of proposing one, but I don't think all of them are going to be built. Well, what do you foresee for 2019 and into 2020 and retail? How do you think it's going to perform and, and what are some of the trends you see forming? Um, retail is the subject of a lot of uh, headlines these days. Mm -hmm. And um, we've talked before about the retail apocalypse. And I, I don't believe that it's as bad as you know the media really makes it out to be. Mm -hmm. I think old and tired retail is failing at a rate faster than it ever has. Um, and... Um, uh, I think some of the positive trends that you see out there, though, I think what's happened the last four or five years where a lot of these retailers run big, you know, growth, open up 25, 30 stores a year, and they're probably opening up 10 stores a year, but they're putting a lot of dollars into their back of house where they want the omni-channel to converge with the physical stores. Um, so, again, I mentioned it earlier, a sale is a sale whether it's in the store, whether it's online, whether it's on your phone. So having that sort of seamless transition, I, I, I think customers are becoming, they almost need it these days, and they're going to push aside anybody who's not doing that. I think buy online, pick up in store is uh, going to uh, be a great way for retailers to kind of satisfy that you know itch of the millennials to get that instant gratification. Mm -hmm. um, and that's a way to drive people to the stores as well, uh, too. Um, uh, I think the trend you're seeing of pure play online opening up stores is going to continue. I read a study, a report a few weeks ago about how um, uh, what do you call traditional online retailers are going to be opening up almost a thousand stores in the next five or six years. So um, they've got reams of data and they know where their customer is and they know what they like. So mm -hmm. that's going to be an interesting trend playing out there as well too. And I, I think the biggest battle that's shaping up for 1920 even a little bit beyond is Amazon versus Walmart mm. and if you look at what each of them is and each of them what they're not Amazon has got the great online presence and with their acquisition of Whole Foods their Amazon Go stores or other foray into uh, what we call brick and mortar retail they're getting to the point where you know Walmart has got all those physical stores and is bolstering their back of house so I, I think the up-and-coming battle in retail in the years ahead is really going to be Amazon versus Walmart. And um, they're differing yet similar models of how to meet the customer needs. Yeah. Well, I want to ask you about 
how you guys are looking at percentage rent these days. So at, at your mixed-use development Atlantic station, do you have some tenants that, that have some percentage rent clauses? Um, every one of them has a percentage rent clause. Okay. Yes. So, so what's happening today on percentage rent on online sales and online orders picks up in stores, online orders that maybe the store delivers mm -hmm. from the store? How do you handle that? Um, in general, percentage rent has evolved the last couple of years, mm -hmm. and it's gone from a uh, it's gone away from a natural sort of break point. Take the net rent, divide it by five, six, seven percent, and there's your threshold. I, I think more and more retailers are now embracing an artificial break point um, and wanting to share with a landlord because deals have become tougher with fewer stores opening. The landlords um, are having to put more capital into deals, so we want to recapture some of that investment sooner. Mm -hmm. But with respect to the online play, that that is still an evolving challenge. Um, one of the biggest challenges we see right now is um, uh, stores that take back like a lot of merchandise and returns. Mm -hmm. That normally counts against your gross sales threshold. Mm -hmm. So particularly somebody say like an H&M, 40,000 square foot store, they're getting more you know, returns probably than any of the other stores just due to its size. Yeah. Um, so somebody from Cincinnati you know, happens to be in town and has a package from H&M uh, that they've been with them and they just happen to see the store and they want to mm -hmm. go return it. Well, why should that count against our mm -hmm. sales threshold and, and the chance for us to get percentage rent? So we've, we've been successful in limiting the amount of returns, mm -hmm. but as far as quantifying where somebody buys online and what that you know, theoretical radius is, should we count any mm -hmm. online sale within a mile, two mile, a half a mile? Right. I, I think that's still an ongoing sort of argument. Yeah, well, it's out and, there. and it's certainly interesting because, you know, they, as an online retailer, you want that store presence. Right. Uh, it helps you. Mm -hmm. uh, also, you might order online and then pick it up in the store. Correct, yes. Right, mm -hmm. and, then, and then some of these stores, like, you know, you mentioned uh, Whole Foods and Amazon. Mm -hmm. Some of these stores become uh, delivery, uh, you know, for same-day delivery to, to people's homes. So. Which, I got to tell you, my wife and I love. Uh, yeah. using Instacart, and then yeah. even simple things uh, on Amazon for you know, paper towels or dishwasher mm -hmm. detergent or yeah. things that just take up space in the car or the cart to have those delivered right to your front step. It's yeah. incredibly convenient. Yeah, yeah, well, it certainly is. Well, Nick, thanks for joining us. Great information as usual. Thank you very much. I appreciate being here. All right. Well, thank you. We're going to have more on retail and retail real estate, so stay with us. I'm Michael Bull. This is America's Commercial Real Estate Show. Have you seen buyproxy.com? Brokers list properties, buyers and tenants search properties all at no cost. They also have a suite of marketing services. Check them out at buyproxy.com. That's spelled B-I-P-R-O-X-I.com. Welcome back to America's Commercial Real Estate Show. I'm Michael Bull. This segment is brought to you by CommercialAgentSuccess.com. It is video training for commercial agents. Check it out at CommercialAgentSuccess.com. Today we're talking about retail. We're talking about retail real estate. Please welcome my next guest. It's Jeremy Cohen. He's a partner with the law firm Hartman Simons, and they do a tremendous amount of retail legal work around the country. Jeremy, thanks for joining us. Michael, thanks for having me, as always. Well, Jeremy, one thing I'm curious about, you know, that we hear a lot of things in the news and 
and then you know, obviously we see it uh, in our work, that some retailers are having a hard time. So when you're working for your clients out there, uh, they own a lot of retail properties, what are the trends on uh, tenant defaults? Are you hearing a little bit more about defaults than, than you have? What do you see as a trend there? I, I would like to tell you I'm not. Mm -hmm. I, I wish I could say that that was the case. Mm -hmm. it, it's unfortunate, I think, that as a as this real estate cycle, which in my mind started mm -hmm. somewhere around second half of 2012, mm -hmm. so we're you know we're six and a half years into the cycle, mm -hmm. you're that's sort of a natural progression, and mm -hmm. there's going to be you know a fallout of some of the tenants that either weren't as successful or have gotten squeezed by either, whether it's the internet, so you know the Amazons of the world or the uh, you know the better operators, and mm -hmm. as a result, unfortunately, the trend that I'm starting to see now is you're having folks start to close their doors. Yeah. Um, Sears just announced, you know, obviously they announced last year they're filing bankruptcy. Uh, Eddie Lampert trying to save them mm -hmm. from doing that and trying to keep four or 500 stores open. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, you know, there's a whole bunch of product that's still going to be coming back on the market. Yeah. And that's good and bad. Yeah. Um, it's good because then you have the retailers that are the stronger operators, the ones that are still going strong, mm -hmm. will cherry pick. Yeah. some of those locations and be able to you know, redevelop, you know, to get into those locations at hopefully a, a fair price. And then what you're, we're, we're seeing a lot of, what I'm still seeing a lot of is the ones, the Sears stores that are going back that are on the malls, all redevelopment opportunities. Yeah. So you have all of the mall owners, the bigger ones, Simon and you know, the REITs of the world that own the, the malls are going to start knocking those down and either doing, either doing some sort of mixed use in terms of residential or you're going to see um, office. I mean, so you're seeing, and we're mm -hmm. seeing a lot of different, you know, redevelopments going in right. on. And aside from the, the big boxes that everyone, you know, kind of sees and knows about um, defaulting, when you come to more of the, I guess, uh, other shop tenants and smaller tenants, are you seeing more kind of local uh, tenant defaults, mom and pops, or, or are you seeing more restaurants or? I'd say restaurants. Mm -hmm. I, you know, from personal experience, mm -hmm. you know, over the last three or four months, I've seen several different mom and pop or chef-driven restaurants that just wouldn't didn't work. Yeah. And whether it was a, an issue of location, whether it was an issue of traffic, mm -hmm. whether for whatever reasons that they were not as successful as they had hoped or, or thought, and they just mm -hmm. went ahead and unfortunately shuttered their doors. Yeah, uh, it's I, you know retailers themselves from a mom and pop, it, you know. The smaller ones, it depends on what they are, but the service use type of nail salons, um, you know, uh, massage places, all those things will sort of sort of continue on and they're able to survive. Yeah. The chain stores, I think, if you look in the malls, the Gap Limited, things like that, are all filed bankruptcy, if they file bankruptcy, not Gap, of course, because mm -hmm. they claim, uh, we just, I did a, I met with a woman from Gap and they're expanding. I mean, they're Old Navy and Gap, or those stores are still doing all right. So yeah. I guess, you know, it just depends on who the operator is. Right. And one thing that's happening with uh, retail real estate is um, land prices have gone up, especially with the multifamily boom and, and uh, a lot of other great things uh, with the economy. And some people are putting smaller stores on less spaces. Um, as a lawyer, helping with these type of developments, helping clients, Sienna, what do you see there? That's an excellent point. Uh, you know, it does add anytime if you have certainly have a mixed use project mm -hmm. and you're trying to have more than one use in a smaller space. If you have retail on a bottom level, you know, followed by a couple levels of office, followed by residential up top, depending on, you know, let's say it's five or six story building, uh, you, each component is going to be sharing sort of the same common areas, the same parking and, and all of the, you know, the amenities that are located within that one building. 
it's it becomes from a lawyer's standpoint, it's great because it takes a lot of time to actually it's a lot of work. Yeah, it's a lot of work mm -hmm. to think through the maturations of how does this all fit together? Where are these people all going to park? I've got a restaurant down there where restaurants are parking are notorious parking hogs. Mm -hmm. uh, where are they all going to park? Do we have valet parking? Is it self parking combination of valet? Who runs the valet stand? Is it for the restaurants during night? But during the day, it's for. It turns out there's a mixed use. There's a restaurant and a hotel. Mm -hmm. Hotel likes valet parking. So you have to, all those inner workings of different because you're right. It's a smaller plot of land and more uses on it. It definitely is a harder structure to to work through some of the you know different. First of all, cost sharing. You know, and the different legalities of how it's all going to play out from a practical world. And are some of the retail tenants? Um, struggle with that that are maybe used to just being in a plain Jane retail development with a lot of parking? They absolutely do. And it's, mm -hmm. it's not their fault. Right. And, you know, and, yeah. it's, and if I represented the retail tenants, and I obviously represent you know, tenants as well, it's difficult to understand, hey, this is how we've done this. Mm -hmm. uh, what do you mean it's going to cost X amount of dollars more? We've always paid, this is the high end of what we paid. Now you're asking me to pay $8 for CAM when I'm mm -hmm. used to paying $1.50 or $2. Mm -hmm. It's hard for them to and they have to, you know, the, the people on the front lines for the retailers have to, the real estate managers and the folks then have to go back to their, their, their executive committees and mm -hmm. say, hey, uh, we, if we really want to be here, this is what it's going to take. Mm -hmm. And this is why they're telling us it's going to be so much more expensive. And to some extent, it's, you know, it's, you have to go a little bit on faith. Yeah. You know, this is what, and for the landlords, if they haven't done it before, a lot of my clients, this is new for them as well. Hey, we realize we can't just you know, build 100,000 square feet of retail. We've got to do a bunch of different things. How, what are you seeing? How do you structure it? Okay, well, we have some experience. We have projects in the Atlanta area that have mixed uses. This is how they did it. This is yeah. how it worked. So. Yeah, and you think about mixed use today, and there's a, a lot of different variances in the type of mixed use. I mean, even just a normal retail shopping center, mm -hmm. you know, we, we have some, we have office tenants and, you know, we have service tenants and we have medical tenants and, and then to the pure kind of mixed use new development where it's kind of designed that way to begin with, right? And that's exactly right. And, you know, I don't think I've ever seen, like, I haven't seen uh, medical and residential mixed yet. That's mm -hmm. the one sort of combination that mm -hmm. hasn't uh, come about. But it, it, unless you're client who's a landlord developer has a picture in its mind from the outset as to what it's going to look like, mm. all, we'll take all comers. Mm. You know, what is it that makes sense? And for them, again, because of the way retail has evolved and, and contracted, um, what is going to make me the best return on my investment? And I think the last time you and I were together, we talked about the fact that if you have a different asset class, like a residential, a medical, or you know, office, in addition to retail, at least you're spreading your risk. Because hopefully they're not all going down at the same time. And, right. And then that helps and that certainly, you know, makes it a little bit easier to stomach as it right. were. Right. And on some of these mixed use projects, Jeremy, do you have different ownership of the different property types? And you absolutely do. Now you got another layer of complications. Do you want, uh, <laughs> do we talk about the, if you want to uh, add 50% headaches to your deal, take on a partner. And so, you know, on, on yeah. this case, and sometimes you have three. You have yeah. the, one developer that owns the top three floors yeah. for the residential, and the office developer owns the middle two, and the retail is owned by somebody else. So you yeah. are you have one overall developer, but he has partners for each of those. So yeah. he does own all, let's say he's a you know, member, 50% member on all three components or two mm -hmm. components, whatever it is, but definitely has, which again, that just adds a legal standpoint. It's fantastic because it's another mm -hmm. la layer of legal complexity that you have to work through all those, all those you know, gyrations. And when you have different ownerships and then one developer's doing an apartment and someone's doing retail and maybe you have another retailer owns a box and you have all these different owners and you also have to set up some um, 
associations, right? And that uh, control this whole project for really its lifetime. Correct. And that's kind of interesting legal work, I would think, because you're trying to set up something today. Do you really know what, what colors and designs and things you really want to prohibit 50 years from now? You don't. And yeah. a lot of it's guesswork. Yeah. And, and it, but it's been going on, you know, they've been, you know, REAs, OEAs, whatever, whatever however you want to call the, the document mm -hmm. that governs the overall operation mm -hmm. of the center. Mm -hmm. You know, you, even back in the malls, and they did the malls in the 70s, when the malls first came out in the 70s, they said, okay, we have to have this document that lasts for 40 years and then has renewal options, whatever it may be. You're guessing. Mm -hmm. The question becomes who controls it? Who is going to have the right to approve those future colors and, and information that, you're right, you don't know. And, mm -hmm. and the other point is if you do give somebody else the right to be an approving party or the, one of the people that makes the decision, you have no idea who you're going to be in debt with in 10 years or 15 right. years. Right. And you, know, you and I get along great now and mm -hmm. we're going to live this forever, but you turns out unfortunately pass away or I pass away and my wife takes over and my wife is mean or you're, you know, you don't know who you're going to be in debt with. Right. And well, so, they sell, yeah. Right. And giving away the, whoever control or power on those sorts of projects is tough. Yeah. And, and it's hard, you can't, as a lawyer, you can't plan for everything. Right. You could, but then the 50, 100 page documents would be 250 pages. <laughs> and even then you would still forget right. things. Right. Yeah, I've, been doing, I've been doing this long enough to know yeah. there's no way I can get everything. Right. So Try to get everything that you can. I, you know, lawyers often, most of our, my brethren, mm -hmm. uh, draft provisions often based on times their clients have gotten burned or things that went wrong. Right. And so you, okay, well, we didn't account for that. Right. I've never in my wildest dreams thought that could happen. Right. So the next time, what are you going to do? I'm going to make sure that whatever right. that was doesn't, you know, if this happens, here's what's going to happen. You know, here's yeah. how this goes down. Yeah. So, well, that, you know, and that, and therein lies the value of a, uh, a professional, whether it's a broker or lawyer, that uh, focuses on one thing. And so you see more issues with retail and you're dealing with it all the time. So it just adds more value. What would you leave our audience with to think about related to retail moving forward? Uh, for moving forward, I, cautious, you know, mm -hmm. cautiously optimistic. Mm -hmm. I, I mentioned we had read, a, I read an article recently that said that retail's certainly not gonna die anytime mm -hmm. soon. Mm -hmm. People still like going to shop, stores, uh, trying shoes, whatever it may be, and to get away, you know, the, the buzzwords there, and I can't say the word, it always throws me off, experiential real estate, mm -hmm. doing some kind of place where people want to go, a top golf, a destination, and then hopefully having offshoots from that. So right. I think cautiously optimistic, move forward with retail's not going anywhere. We're going to be along. It's going to be around for yeah. the foreseeable future. But, uh, you know, I wouldn't be jumping in. If you haven't done it before, I wouldn't jump in, you know, with full feet right now. So. <laughs> right, and start right now. Right. All right, Jeremy, thanks. Uh, great information. Thanks for joining thanks us. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. And uh, thank you for joining us out there around the world, around the country. Appreciate uh, you watching the show or listening. And, hey, have you seen us on LinkedIn or Facebook or Twitter? Uh, please check it out. You can find all of our connections at commercialrealestateshow.com. Until next week, be sure that you always lead, learn, and laugh, and join us for America's Commercial Real Estate Show. America's Commercial Real Estate Show is brought to you by BullRealty.com, commercial real estate asset and occupancy solutions. RedIQ.com, turning data into valuable action. ByProxy.com, a complimentary listing service. CommercialAgentSuccess.com, video training from Michael Ball. Bomi.org, property and facility management education. To access these recommended companies or for more podcasts and videos, visit CREshow.com.